It's news to us the week of February 1st. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Hey, it's Eddie here. Jason and Katie are over there in our socially distanced quarantine corners. Hi, guys. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> What's up? Live on Adobe Radio, as always. You guys doing good? How's it yeah, I kind of dig yeah. quarantine. Yeah. Uh, a little bit. I mean, you know, I can't, there, are, there are aspects of it that I actually like, and I those I'll keep around, you know? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that uh, things will change as uh, things begin to reopen, right? Slowly, but I, I think a lot of people are going to continue to work from home. I think uh, exactly stuff like that. That's not necessary. Well, it'll be interesting, though. Um, I, I dig no traffic. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's really helpful. Absolutely. Uh, well, on tonight's show, today's show, this morning, whatever the F you're listening, but we are live this evening on Adobe Radio uh, or afternoon, whatever the hell you're listening. I, I, I think I'll get caught up in that. The time shift is messing up my brain. I just went through a, a portal in time and I came out the other end and I'm like all goop. Um, anyways, in case you missed it, there was an attempted coup about a month ago. Yes, remember that? That happened. Vaguely. And if you were paying attention to any of that or what we've learned since then is that this attempted coup, this domestic terrorist attack was just another example of white supremacy inside law enforcement. So we're going to bring on a guest, Dr. Rashawn Ray, professor of sociology and executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland. What a title is going to be coming on to discuss that uh, white supremacy inside of law enforcement uh, how did it get there? What to do about it? And then uh, speaking of extremism and extremists, extremists in Congress, there are a couple that are just like unhinged talking about Josh Hawley and Marjorie Taylor Green, uh, two elected officials that are just out of their minds. Uh, so we're going to expose them. They'll be exposed right here uh, tonight. Like, like nobody has ever exposed them before. <laughs> so much exposure. So much exposure. The best exposure. It's news to us. It's news to us. Adobe Radio. As always, we are on Twitter. It's news to us. Come say hello. Hello. A lot of good tweets, Katie, that you had. Um, yeah, you've been doing a good job responding to stuff, posting things, and a, a few throughout the week I thought were highlights. There was one, actually, that was really entertaining to me. It was right before Biden's new press secretary came out. There was a photo that was taken of the podium and a monitor behind the podium, and there was, like, an extension cord that was visible. And then somebody uh, tweeted, like, Actually, the founder of Women for Trump tweeted, you would never see this sort of disorganization in the Trump administration. <laughs> Sleepy Joe probably won't even notice this extension cord. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, like a scandal, the extension cord scandal. I was so sickened. <laughs> yeah, then what did you tweet? I forgot. It was funny. I don't know. I pretty much told her to shut the F up, though. I think you're like, STFU Accord, give me a break or something. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Then that went viral. <laughs> yes, viral. Uh, then you also tweeted about uh, this Joe Biden 
and uh, the Biden administration taking climate change seriously because General Motors announced that they're going to be eliminating all gasoline and diesel cars and SUVs by 2035. That's pretty crazy. So you tweeted the Washington Post article. Yeah, that's really kind of a big deal because like, I think what's always held us up before is that we are the biggest, like our biggest CO2 emissions come from cars. Like that's the biggest polluter we have in the country is cars. So we could never get the car industry to back these kinds of changes that we needed before. And this time they're all kind of jumping on board. And I think it has a lot to do with the market shifting towards wanting electric cars. But it's going to make a huge difference. Well, you also have car manufacturers in other countries that are are already moving towards this and have announced this. Yeah. So they're just getting in line with the worldwide industry. It's time. And some breaking news today. I did see that DeLorean is going to be coming out with an electric version of the DeLorean, an EV DeLorean. Ooh, fancy. And I was thinking sign Eddie up. Sign me up, but I was thinking it'd be like really, really expensive to charge it because I don't know what the bill would be like to get to one point twenty one gigawatts. <laughs> but um bump. <laughs> uh but it'd be pretty cool to have that. This would probably like super I mean, expensive. You bring this up and you know the counter argument is how do you charge it? You plug it in, where does electricity come from? From from God. Coal. Oh, (laughs) from coal power and, you know, refineries and oil and gas. Like a lot of people say that, like, I just want to give you to the chance to counter that argument. Yeah, but there's also wind energy and solar energy and and and, uh, clean coal towards that. Yeah. Yeah. Clean coal. Clean coal. The wash first. They bleach it first. The washing machine <laughs> yeah, just, and they have scrubbers in the coal. before it uh, goes up in the air. They scrub the thing. Yeah, but yeah, you're you're right. The wind, wind, solar, that stuff yeah. is getting better and better. So as long as we're moving in the right direction, I, I you know. But you are right, Jason, because it, it all is gonna. We have to get this energy from somewhere. Well, for the longest time, we didn't have a way to store solar energy. And I mean, up until like very recently, like in the last couple of years, that's becoming more of a non-issue. Um, so that was a huge hurdle to get over before we could move on to more electric powered. How do we, and, what do you mean? How do we store it? To, how do we figure out how to store it? Do we get like an, an extra freezer for the basement sort of deal? A lot of nine volt batteries. Yeah, exactly. A lot of nine volt batteries. <laughs> We got, we they, got a new they free didn't up. have a way to store it. it was, you know, you had to use it. Well, gotcha. I mean, the technology behind like batteries in general, though, has come so far. I mean, they have batteries in cars, right? Like, so I think as yes. technology improves, we'll be able to store more efficiently. And every yeah. year, just is such a dramatic, 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 <laughs> new words, dramatic change. Yeah. Well, I mean, my iPhone lasts half a day so that's pretty good as far as batteries go and if they can just apply that to a car you need a new phone yeah i was gonna say my brand new one lasts um (laughs) a lot longer than that (laughs) that's how they get you the battery life that's what makes me upgrade every time uh but uh dirty deets members of congress that are just psychotic the dirty deets an in-depth look at this week's most important stories 
Two names that we should know that uh, we need to get these assholes out and they need to be voted out. I think they will. There's, I, I really hope there's no way that these two serve again, but in the time that they're in, it's pretty dangerous. But they're these two, uh, Josh Hawley and Marjorie Taylor Greene, part of the U.S. Congress Hall of Shame. Shame. These two are crazy. Shame. And I don't Terrible. shame. I don't throw no, crazy no. around lightly. Like I, I know that you're not supposed. That's like supposedly something you're not supposed to say. But they, they. I'm saying it because they're jerk faces. I think they're both jerks. <laughs> I will argue that one of them's crazy and the other one is not. Yeah, I don't know that Josh Hawley is is crazy. He's just a. He's just an ass. Well, He's let's, just let's, evil. Let's, let's yeah. break it down. Let's talk about both. First, Josh Hawley. So. He was the first senator to announce that he would object to the certification of Joe Biden's victory. And of course, that led to others kind of getting on the bandwagon and ultimately led to the insurrection at the Capitol. So this guy is sort of like the um, the the uh, the the head of the thing I was saying. I don't know. He started it. It was him. He yeah. Point the yeah, fingers at Josh Hawley. <laughs> Asshole. Jerk. Uh, U.S. Senator, <clears throat> he is uh, he is Missouri, elected in 2019. Uh, he yep, clerked yep. for uh, Justice John Roberts, former Attorney General of Missouri. And by the way, as Missouri Attorney General, he also uh, initiated several high-profile lawsuits and investigations, including a lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act. So this guy does not want you to have health insurance as well. So just in case it is personal now. Figures. But uh, more more information, like why this guy really is this Josh Hawley. Guy. First of all, we talked about Ted Cruz last week. So go back to last week's episode if you haven't yet. If you're listening on a podcast or if you're listening live on Adobe Radio, subscribe and everything kind of goes together. Last week, we talked about Ted Cruz, a, another senator and why he is uh, just out of control and needs to go. But uh, this Josh Hawley guy, he is like... He's bad, just as bad on different levels. He is a believer in the big lie and uh, a supporter of the big lie. I yeah, I was going to say yeah, supporter. Supporter of the big lie. Now, the, when you when you say he's a supporter of the big lie, besides using the big lie, we'll say what that is in a second. How do you how do we know that he is a supporter of the big lie? Well, he is. Um we say supporter as opposed to believer because a lot of people believe that he doesn't actually believe that Joe Biden wasn't uh, legally elected. So he's just, uh, he spreads it. Yeah. He's just spreading it and following along with it because but the big lie. Like, sorry. I thought you were done. Sorry. No, you, you cut out for a second. So I thought you were done talking. Go ahead. Uh, he's just uh, supporting the premise because he wants the base to support him. Trump's base. Well, the big lie, I mean, so you're saying the big lie is saying that uh, Joe Biden was not fairly elected president of the United States, but the big lie in some research I did is actually deeper to that than that. And it, and it goes back to Nazi Germany and Hitler himself, because the big lie is simply making up a lie so big and ridiculous that you everybody knows it's ridiculous and big, but if you keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. And we saw Donald Trump do that like through his whole political campaign. 
And this uh, technique of propaganda actually goes back to Mein Kampf, uh, Hitler's book, which is on my nightstand. And uh, oh, I mean, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, but uh, right. and, and President Biden did a town hall leading up to the um, the 2020 election, and he actually compared Hawley and Ted Cruz to Nazis and referenced the big lie. And so this whole lie has been coined the big lie. So now, okay, got it. So now we fast forward to present day, and the big lie is that Joe Biden wasn't fairly elected, even though there's been investigation after investigation and looks into it and the reviewing of the the votes, and there's nothing crazy that happened there. Yes, I believe there was sixty lawsuits that were turned down in courts. And all, yeah, and, and so there is this uh, also this so this viral photo of Josh Howley is also. Pretty crazy. So not only did this guy start the whole questioning of Joe Biden being elected, but what is this viral photo that went crazy on Twitter and everywhere right before? Uh, Holly was, uh, as he was walking up into the Capitol, he walked past the, the angry mob and he raised his fist as he was walking in to object to the certification of the electors. So, yeah, um, I mean, this guy needs to be expelled. We'll 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 talk about if that's even possible in just a second. But, um, yeah, but that, I thought this was pretty crazy. So, so I guess many of his uh, former colleagues insist that that Josh Hawley is is perpetrating this lie that Biden didn't win the election, even though he knows for certain that it's a conspiracy theory, and he's just like kind of spreading this lie around. It's, it's, I mean, he he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. So he's he he doesn't believe what he's saying at all. He's just trying to, uh, I don't know, uh, overtake. He's trying, the, to, he's trying to, to create a coup. He's trying to drum gain up, yeah. support. Right. Yeah. So like, um, this is all political ambition, right? Like, there's nothing legal to his challenge. He knows that. Um, and all his former colleagues and friends, they all know that he knows that they, you know, they've come on record saying that they know that Holly knows Biden won, but he publicly, he's saying that, uh, he's challenging it because he wants the people who voted for Trump to support him in 2024 for a presidential, uh, nominee. One of his, uh, fellow the GOP penisers. Um, <laughs> I love it. Geo penis. Um, former Senator John Danforth, he, a Republican, uh, I guess, supported Josh Hawley when he was coming up and helped get him elected to the Senate. But now he has come out and, and said, quote, supporting Josh and trying so hard to get him elected to the Senate was the worst mistake I've ever made in my life. He said that to the St. Louis Post Dispatch. Yeah, that's pretty hardcore in his life. In his, the, yeah. Yeah. God. So that's how dangerous this guy potentially is. Keep an eye on this asshole. And um, especially if you are in Missouri, you need to do everything you can to oppose whatever this guy believes in. Make his life a living hell any way you can. And then, at least, I mean, I, I, I have to be careful these days, I guess, obviously. When I say that, I mean uh, with your words and what with you your- support. Your vote, yeah, political just vote, just vote. <laughs> and then when it comes time to to get this guy out of office, 
do everything you can to get him out of office uh, exactly. when it comes to Organize, organizing and, and getting people to vote. I got to be very specific now, apparently. Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> you don't want to incite anything. <laughs> I'm not trying to incite anything. So shame on you, Josh Hawley. Shame. Shame. Next up on the uh, wall of uh, shame is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is a far right extremist politician from Georgia, businesswoman, conspiracy theorist. This is a QAnon, the QAnon uh, congresswoman, and she is just, uh, how did she get Georgia? What the F? She's straight baddie. She's, she's, yeah, she's, she doesn't have all her marbles. She ran unopposed, basically, is what happened. So nobody was paying attention there. No, somebody ran, right? Oh, okay. There was, there was a gentleman who ran. I would have to look up his name, but I mean, he basically dropped out because it was so like the race was getting so batshit crazy and he was afraid of violent extremism. Like he was scared of what was going to happen with all the white nationalists. Do you think and that was he? I mean, using. did he say he was being threatened or anything like that? He was because it's his uh, dropout is a pretty big deal. Kevin Van Osdol, Asdol was his name. Okay, so that's the Democrat that dropped out of this race, and then that's pretty scary. I mean, I wonder what was going on there. That's something to look into more. But uh, she represents, yeah. yeah. It just seemed more like he was just like really put off by the rhetoric and couldn't. He couldn't match it. Like he didn't have a mean bone in his body and she was coming at him with like conspiracy theorist crap and like mean, really terrible things. And Jewish people are setting the fire forest on fire with lasers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's like, this, how do you fight that man? That's okay. You can't just throw that out there. I can <laughs> explain. And I did explain what you're talking about. So Marjorie Taylor Greene said that just recently, right? That, that, that the forest fires in California are being set by Jewish people with lasers. Yes. She, <laughs> you, you can't just say that. that. I saw that in a headline and I was like, what the fuck did I just read? She said that. She also says that there's no evidence that a plane ever hit the Pentagon on 9-11. Well, I mean, come on. <laughs> and she also says that... Uh, uh, the the school shootings at Sandy Hook and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Parkland never took place and that they're conspiracies. Didn't Alex Jones have to pay a lot of money in, in lawsuit settlements? Paying. And yeah, for saying that, so sue her. Sue her. And not if you're... only that, she like torments these kids. Like She needs to be sued for that. Yeah. Because that's really fucked up. I, the, I think the family members need to go legally after her for that yeah these i mean like just real quick a little tangent but man i feel so just my heart hurts for the sandy hook families like leave their children alone yeah right like they should not be in litigation they should try to be moving on like you know like they lost babies children. they lost babies their babies like yeah they shouldn't have to be reliving this well, with every right wing nut job. Parents of any school shooting victim is. I mean, I mean ugh, it just come on. And then how give the, them a break. I can't believe that this woman 
is a U.S. representative in Georgia. And not only that, she sits on the education committee. Yeah. How, how, how did she get that? I mean, like, that was McCarthy. A, yeah, Kevin, Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy. So she opposes, she says that Sandy Hook was a hoax and that, oh, you know, let's put her on the education committee. Yeah. Give me a goddamn break. Yeah. Fuck you, McCarthy. Right? So uh, she also insists that Obama is a Muslim and that the Clintons are murderers. Even though DJT himself has dropped that. <laughs> she <laughs> dropped the whole birther thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway. Yeah, and I, I uh, and it even gets like crazier than that. I guess that she uh, on a on a social media post back in January 2019, she commented that quote a bullet to the head would be quicker in reference to removing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So she threatened Nancy Pelosi's life with a bullet to the head, and hey, let's make her part of the uh, education committee. That's fine, guys. Yeah, it's funny how all her social media was scrubbed. After yeah. all these started popping up, like they went through, like oh, that's never gonna die. Go through and scrub it all out. You can delete social media all you want, but there's ways to bring that up. Ex. I know. Yeah, people. If, have. Well, I know you, you know. They would have done that before, though. I know that you know. <laughs> these people obviously don't know. I mean, like to actually go back and delete it makes it uh, seem like that they know what she did was wrong. So <clears throat> that's oh, like an admission fair. of guilt to me to go back yeah, and delete shit. Well, well, they're still deleting it now. Yeah, this this woman. I, so I, you have her like threatening House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with a bullet to the head. She's saying that Sandy Hook is a hoax, and she has all these conspiracy theories. But how the hell do we get rid of her and Josh Hawley? Well, it's it's really not going to be easy because it looks like um, we need a two thirds vote. Of House members, the Senate doesn't have to do anything for this. Apparently, or actually, this is at least for uh, Marjorie. Uh, so, two thirds of the House have to vote to get her out, but uh, that would mean that re- the Republicans would need to get on board with it, and that most likely isn't going to happen. Her own party, no. because Republicans are complicit in all of this. If you support the Republican Party, you are essentially, by extension, supporting this woman because they're not going to do anything about it. That's correct. True story. They don't do anything unless it's tax breaks for the corporations. And billionaires. Yeah. 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 And our guest is Dr. Rashawn Ray, a professor of sociology and executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland. He's written for the New York Times, Newsweek, Huffington Post, NBC News, also several books you can check out. And, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about the attempted coup that happened less than a month ago. And the, the story just keeps getting deeper and deeper and no surprise. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you're paying any attention at all, white supremacy has a lot to do with what went down on January 6th and the way that it is infiltrated into law enforcement. And uh, well, uh, our, our guest is an expert on all of these topics. Uh, Dr. Ray, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I really look forward to having this important conversation. It really is a very important conversation. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to uh, come on and discuss this with us. Uh, just to get to know you a little bit. So you, uh, uh, University of Maryland, are you, are you from that area? 
No, I'm not. I'm originally from Tennessee, but I mean, I'm I'm living here now. I mean, my kids are obviously growing up here, even though they were actually born on the West Coast in California when I was doing a postdoctoral fellowship in uh, at UC Berkeley with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. But yeah, I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland in College Park, uh, which is in the D.C. suburbs, and I'm also a David Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. Oh, very cool. So education is uh, is very important to you. What um, Have you always been a curious individual? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, of course. I mean, I think my, you know, both of my boys are the same way. Uh, they're very inquisitive. I think particularly my youngest kid. But I mean, growing up, I mean, I've been around healthcare providers. So my wife is a nurse practitioner. She's on the front lines of this pandemic. My uh, mother is a retired nurse. My grandmother is a retired nurse. And then my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my grandmother-in-law, as well as my aunt, all work in healthcare. So I was going to go to medical school. I took Latin in high school. I worked at the VA. I shadowed physicians. Um, And then I got to college and I discovered a sociology course. And I was just enamored with it. And I was like, what can I do with this? What am I supposed to do? So I figured it out. Um, Went on to get my PhD at Indiana University and Kind of never looked back from there. What is it about sociology that fascinated you at first? And and does this bleed over to your personal life too? Do you do you try to analyze why things are happening in your familiar uh, in your familiar unit, or like what's how how does this work for you on a day to day? You know, that's interesting. I'm I'm curious what uh, you know what the people who are closest to me would say. They would probably say yes. I mean, I'm sure I have some type of kind of stylistic things professionally and personally. But for me, I remember sitting in the back of a class as a freshman, taking a course that was that was required. It was like intro to sociology. I was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know why I'm here. You know, I'm like, I'm going to go to med school. I don't know why I'm taking this class. And it just so happened that the professor who was teaching the class um, had cancer. Now, gratefully, she recovered, but she ended up having a graduate student teach the class. And he was just so animated. And I remember this one day, he was like 10 minutes late. I'm looking at the clock, you know, I'm like 10 minute rule. I'm out of here. He comes running in. It was a huge class, like well over a hundred people, probably 200 people in the classroom. He comes running in. It was in an auditorium. He's on a stage. He comes in with a white bathrobe, um, with a shower, squeegee, uh, a shower cap and some flip flops. And he comes in and he says, Oh my gosh. He said, I didn't realize that the time changed. He said, I was late for class, so I just came like this. I was like, who is this guy? He's a joke. And so like halfway through the class, he says, who can tell me what I was talking about? And I had no idea. Like I was so focused on the fact that he was just looking out of place. And he said, I just performed what is called a breach experiment on you, which is where you act differently than the social norms of the setting. So for example, it might be if you're on an elevator, you get in the elevator and someone is facing the wall when you get in. What are you going to do? Are you going to get back off or you're going to act like you're not paying them attention. I mean, it's going to freak you out a little bit. And from that point on, I said, whatever he's studying, I want to know about. So I went to Indiana university. I specialized in social psychology. I specialized in social inequality and really looking at the way people think what they think, feel what they feel and do what they do. That's essentially what I do. That's so fascinating. So interesting. I would imagine that studying this too also sort of helped you with the ladies because you kind of get to uh, dissect what's going on and uh, maybe approach 
things with a little bit more, uh, you can kind of zoom out a little bit more. I don't know. And, and, uh, kind of get out of your head and approach it more scientifically. At least I would, I don't know. That's just me being weird, I guess with that thought, but <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean, I will say, I mean, I'm, I mean, I, one of the things that I study actually is relationships and family. So my recent book is how family matters, how families matter, the simple compli- complicated intersections of race, gender and work. And so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned to, to really know, um, people's various triggers in terms of attractiveness, what really leads to people being attracted to others or not. And the biggest thing that I realized whether or not we're talking about attractiveness or even people's motivations behind, you know, what we're going to talk about in a second is that, um, oftentimes it's factors that we don't really think about. It's actually what we call macro level, uh, factors or the part of the system, whether that be institutional sexism or institutional racism. So for attractiveness, it's actually oftentimes what people bring to the table, their socioeconomic status, their education level, how much money they make, those sort of things can really influence people's uh, perceptions of attractiveness. So one of the big findings that I have and that others have also shown is that as men's education level increases, as men's income increases, they're perceived as being more attractive. Conversely, the more education that women receive, the less attractive they are. Now, that doesn't mean someone wants someone who isn't um, intelligent, <clears throat> but up to a certain point, a lot of men actually cannot handle being with a woman who, who has a higher level of education than them, who makes more money than them, and these factors shape how other people view attractiveness. That's really fascinating stuff. We could like almost do a whole show on that. I mean, I guess that's good news for me because I, I think I'd almost rather have a woman that's more successful in, than me and smarter than me. So I, it <laughs> seems like less work for me personally. But I don't know. <laughs> well, look, I'm I'm the same way. I mean, my wife is completely uh, more intelligent and and does way more things better than I do. So I mean, I, I definitely came up when I got with her, and and we're actually high school sweethearts. So you're getting me in trouble. Talking oh, to me about uh, right. what I might have done in college. So that, that was part of me, part of me avoiding uh, avoiding that particular answer. Oh well, that's not why you're here. We kind of went down a weird path there, but yeah, we can move on. That's fine. We don't want to get you in trouble. And what we do, what we want to talk about, really is uh, just really important. And uh, you know, I guess it's kind of hard for, to segue a little bit from uh, such a lighthearted conversation to the seriousness of this topic. Yeah, but. Uh, Donald Trump's ideology, I mean, um, it seems to have emboldened a lot of racists, and now they're showing their true colors with almost no shame. And my question to you is, do you think it might have been more dangerous to us when we didn't know who these people were? You know, that's an interesting question. I think for a lot of Americans, sure. And I think part of the reason why is because a lot of us are not willing to admit that the domestic terrorists who stormed the Capitol to engage in an insurgency, to uh, reclaim an America that once was, that excluded a lot of people, including people like me. We're not willing to admit that those people are our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, and even our family members. And part of what's happened over the past, I would say 30 or 40 years or so, is many of us have really bought in, brought, bought into a colorblind ideology. In other words, we've assumed 
that if race is out of sight, out of mind, if we're not consciously thinking about it, that it doesn't impact our lives. Well, obviously, we know there are other people who are living drastically different lives that are highly impacted by race. But for many people, either because of their racial background or in some, some cases their social class background or their education, that they're able to try to try to, to create a, um, a shield, kind of a force field, if you will, that that is happening over there, that it's on the fringe, that is so extreme that it's not mainstream. And part of what Donald Trump did was he injected a, still, a steroid of hate into the, into the American mainstream. And he opened up a Pandora's box that was literally right on the surface, that was in our neighborhoods, that was in our schools, that was on social media, that was on cable news, that was in all the places where we frequent. And we, we can no longer deny that that's the case. So I think for a lot of people it was a surprise, not because it wasn't there, but because people were engaging in a social psychological process that created a mental block where they would not admit that the things that we consider fringe are unfortunately mainstream. I mean, what about people? I mean, like, I think once before Donald Trump became president, I think with like Fox News becoming a really big far right idealist type thing is when I started realizing it. So before Donald Trump, but before that, I mean, it wasn't that I was like oblivious to things, but I, I literally just wasn't around people like that. And I don't watch Fox News, you know, I don't watch things like that. So I, I mean, I just, I was never around it. I was never, um, you know, I knew about police shootings and things like that, but it wasn't something that was like really put in front of me ever. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's part of that force field. I mean, some of us are in a bubble and a healthy and positive bubble. But then there are a lot of people who are outside of that bubble or outside of those particular bubbles. So it's a couple things that I'll highlight. One of the big things that you mentioned, and we saw this play out with the 2020 election, is that Biden's um, voters primarily came from the most economically um, thriving communities all across the country, no matter where you're at. Most of his voters came from places that are thriving economically. Now, that doesn't mean that there might not be some urban or rural places where people live in poverty. We know that's the case, whether you're in Southeast D.C. or whether or not you're in Atlanta or Oakland or L.A. and what have you. The other thing that happened, though, is that there's also, in conjunction with that urban and rural divide, there are other people who are living their lives in a drastically different way that leads to the certain things that are playing out in everyday life that their lives really are struggling. And oftentimes what happens if, if a person is white, if they are more likely to be rural, if they're more likely to be working class without a college degree, that jobs have shriveled up jobs that, that shriveled up in black communities decades ago. I mean, we can look at Detroit or St. Louis or Baltimore, or Gary, Indiana, or Memphis to see that's the case, but it's more recent for whites. The other thing that people need to recognize, you brought up cable news. That's a great point. I mean, look, no one can deny the fact that over the past 20 years, Fox news has dominated cable news up until recently. I mean, interestingly, CNN technically took the lead in, De- in December after the election. It's going to be curious uh, whether or not Fox responds, but that's been a result of Fox actually saying that Donald Trump lost the election. Part of mentioning that, though, is that even before 
Fox News kind of took their reign um, to control cable news. Part of what was happening in Congress is if we go back to the 1970s, even the 80s and in the early 90s, Democrats and Republicans crossed the aisle. And it's interesting because I, I just seen before coming on, uh, this is part of my job at Brookings, um, Senate Republicans talking about their meeting with Biden and how positive it, it was. And hopefully these are the kind of things that we're going to see, this kind of bipartisan communication. Because in the mid-90s, what started to occur is that Republicans and Democrats started voting drastically different from one another. It started being completely partisan. And look, I go on Capitol Hill a lot. I testify on the Hill. I meet with our elected officials. And I'm in meetings with Republicans and Democrats a lot. Unfortunately, when they come out of those meetings, they engage in political theater, very much similar to what we saw um, the night of the Capitol insurgency, where there were still some Republicans who doubled down in talking about uh, voter fraud. But then there were also a lot of others who backed away. That suggests the extent to which political theater plays out. And it's unfortunate that political theater is playing out on the backs of Americans, hardworking Americans who are, who are trying to do what they're supposed to do. And part of highlighting that is what I'm getting at is even before social media, even before the cable news polarization, there was polarization on Capitol Hill that I think cable news was responding to, Fox one direction, MSC the other direction, CNN kind of in the middle trying to figure it out. And then obviously eco chambers on social media that really reflect back to us what we give to it. Yeah. Do you think that even if nothing comes from these bipartisan talks that they're having, even if they still can't come to agreements on things, that it will still help move them in a positive direction eventually? I think so. I mean, I think as long as they keep communicating and they keep um, keep the public abreast of what's going on and they're transparent, transparent about it, I think so. And I'm going to tell you the main reason why I think so. And this is the reason why even the meeting today was so was so significant. Joe Biden, President Biden has been in politics for nearly, you know, over like over 40 years, right? Around 40 years right. or over 40 years or so. He um, has always been a compromiser and a reformer. And I think that's important for the country. You know, he says, these are the things that my constituents, the people who put me in office want, but then there are also 70 million people who didn't vote for me. What do they want? And I want to bring them to the table and have these conversations. So I think Joe Biden is going to be a reformer in that way. I also think that Vice President Harris in the same way. I mean, in California, I mean, look, coming up the ranks from being district attorney and attorney general, I mean, she caught a lot of flack, um, oftentimes a lot of flack from liberals and progressives. And I think that was because, similar to Joe Biden, uh, both of them are reformers and compromisers. And even though I think that they're going to bulldoze some things through in the first two years while the Democrats control the Senate, the House, and obviously the presidency. I do, do view them as being able to compromise, and Joe Biden's legacy in the Senate and Kamala Harris coming from the Senate, I think will help them to get some things done. Now, when we talk about the what happened on January 6th, the insurrection, the Domestic uh, Terrorist Act, do you think, uh, you did mention political theater here and there, do you think that the events on January 6th was political theater gone out of control, or do you think it was an actual attempted coup? Yeah, I think it was a, an actual coup. I mean, it, it's no doubt about it. I mean, look, these individuals 
Unfortunately, we just found out, which wasn't surprising to me, given the research that I do, that one in five of the people who they have identified um, are current or former law enforcement and military. That's not surprising to me because one of the things that I always highlight is that bad apples come from rotten trees and policing. And the, the roots, the rotten roots of those trees are laced with, right, with, with, with uh, white supremacy. And even for some people who join the military, like, look, we have to be very honest that for the many people who join the military and become police officers, like the people in my family, I mean, my grandfather served 21 years in the military, served in two wars, Purple Heart, Bronze Star. My mom was admitted to West Point in the late 1970s as a black woman. My great uncle was the first black chief of police in my hometown. And then I have other relatives who are in law enforcement I understand that people are, are aiming to protect and serve and aiming to uphold our democracy and actualize it. But for all of those people, there's also another group of people who join law enforcement and join the military to aim to maintain a sense of white supremacy, an ideology of white supremacy, a, a particular way of living that only allows them to be able to take advantage of what the United States has to offer. And for those individuals who stormed the Capitol, who were emboldened by former President Trump, they went there because they perceived themselves to be the sole rightful heirs of the U.S. Capitol as a symbol of the United States of America. And we have to be clear that for many of them, when they hear Make America Great Again, they hear a time period in which we will probably not be able to be having this phone call where I would not be able to be working where I'm working at. And we will roll back the clock where only certain people will be able to vote. Only certain people will be able to have access to, uh, to certain occupations and where certain people will only be able to live in certain places. That is what they want. And we cannot simply deny that, that unfortunately uh, white supremacy is not something that Donald Trump just unearthed or something that supposedly he created. He didn't frame it, but it was already there. And we have to admit that it was in our neighborhoods, it was in our schools, it's on social media, and unfortunately it's also in our families. You've done a lot of research and you found that there is a big mental health issue inside of law enforcement. So I'm wondering, do you... This kind of like takes it to one step further. Do you think that white supremacy itself, in addition to being an ideology, is a mental health issue? Um, no, and I and I'll tell you why. I think I think it, it um it does two things. I think first, it's a cop out, kind of lets them off the hook, and then second, I think it it's in in a sense disrespectful to the many people who are dealing with mental health issues. You know, I think people who are racist are just racist now. I think what you're getting at is there an intersection there. Um, yeah, it could be. Yeah, but, but part of the intersection is the fact of how people who are oftentimes on the fringe of society, or at least they feel that they are, they think that they are, even if they're not, that oftentimes they're easily radicalized. And so we know that people who are veterans returning from the war, like my god brother who served four tours in Iraq, to uh, to former, say, Olympians who have fallen on hard times, that these are sometimes the, the demographics of people that right-wing extremists, white nationalists and white supremacists try to attract because they are trying to 
get them to blame a particular group of people or a country and saying that this is what needs to happen. Um, obviously, we do know, though, <clears throat> that within law enforcement, that mental health is a huge problem. Um, it's also a huge problem among military veterans. I mean, the work I've done on law enforcement shows that 80% of police officers suffer from chronic stress, depression, anxiety, um, they anger issue, they, they anger quickly. They oftentimes have relationship problems, and it's because of the things that they see every day. One out of six of them report being suicidal. One out of six report alcohol or drug problems. And here's the problem. Here's the kicker. 90% of them never seek help. But that, that spans across law enforcement, not just the sect of people who I would consider to be racist, which, unfortunately, is a larger percentage in law enforcement that we actually might think. I mean, and just to tell you how this kind of stuff plays out, um, in Baltimore, there was a guy who applied for the police academy. He put some, some of his former coworkers down as references. And when they checked references, they told uh, the police academy or the, the police recruiters, they said, well, you know, I mean, this guy has some, has some racist tendencies. Like, I'm unsure if he should really be the person who should be given a gun to go out on the streets. They hired him anyway. Like, these are the types of things that we need to be able to do something about, to put in checks, to weed out not only uh, people with affiliations to white supremacist groups, but also reduce the likelihood that people who have anti-black bias can become police officers in the first place. Well, in other way, there any bias at all? Right. I know we have limited time here, and we're about to wrap up. Uh, Dr. Rashawn Ray. Professor of Sociology, University of Maryland. And uh, before we let you go, though, um, now that uh, Trump is out of office, do you think that we should be more or less worried that acts of violence by Trump extremists will be carried out in the coming years? Do you have any opinion on this? It's a great question. Um, as of now, I, I haven't changed what kind of what I think, which is I was worried before. I'm still worried. Um, I guess I'll say I'm, I'm really worried for the president and vice president. And I'll tell you why, because historically, when we look at moments in which we've made huge racial progress, which I think we're doing now, we're about to do. This is one of the reasons why these white supremacists are, are coming out and storming the Capitol. But when we look back in history, you know, the mid 1860s with Abraham Lincoln and of course what happened to him. When we look in the 1960s with President Kennedy and what happened to him, we know that there have been significant, credible threats against President Biden and Vice President Harris. And just being in the D.C. area, I could tell people that it has disrupted um, life as we know it. I know on the media, people see things like with Trump, where he would block off things and things like that. No, what's happening now is nothing like I've seen in terms of like literally there are places where we, we cannot go because the credible threat suggests that there could or probably is a bomb in the area. And that has, has happened several times over the past month. And so I, I am worried, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm more worried. Um, but I would say that, that we need to ensure that people from the National Guard to Capitol Police um, are fully vetted to ensure that these white supremacists who have infiltrated some of what I think are pillars of our communities when it comes to law enforcement and military, that they are weeded out so that we can be sure that the people were put in place to protect um, our elected officials as well as to protect us 
are not compromised where all of a sudden their views about race and racial ideology impacts their behavior. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess, sorry, one more final question because it is black history month. And I know that you did put out a piece in the Hill. Uh, it was a title. What would MLK say about Trump and the Republican party? Can, what would, what would he say? I know you put it out. A, yeah. Well, I, what would you, yeah, yeah. I think what he would say. Yeah. I appreciate you highlighting that piece that I, that I wrote in the Hill. You know, I, I think what he would say is this. Part of what I aim to do in that piece is that is to is to debunk perceptions that people say that King was a Republican. His father was definitely a Republican early on and then switched to be a Democrat later in his life. That was a pattern of most black people. But the Republican and Democratic Party um, a century ago is not the same as it is today. And people need to read up on their history. What King would say is that, look, we have a lot of work to do. King will say that he is in favor of a guaranteed income. He is in favor of increasing uh, the minimum wage. He is in favor of, um, of health care for everyone. And he is in favor of firmly doing something about police brutality. And in particular, I think what he would say at the beginning of Black History Month is if we really want to address um, white supremacy and the legacy of systemic racism and its current ramifications, is we need to properly atone for not just slavery, but Jim Crow and systemic racism. And the only way to properly do that is through reparations, similar to what the United States has aimed to do with Japanese Americans, um, American Indians, and other groups. Well, thank you for that. And uh, that article is in the Hill. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Hopefully next time we get you on, we can talk about something, uh, something maybe a little bit lighter. I don't know, but this is very important information to get out. I don't want to discount that at all. Um, I, you, you know a lot about the way society works and societal norms. You could, you could almost be like a writer on the next Jackass movie and how to disrupt those societal <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, I, I would I would actually welcome that. I, I think I've watched most of those movies, so yeah, I, I would look forward to that. Actually, sociologist Ray on Twitter, and the, from there you can get linked up to the websites and the link tree. Everything is on there, and uh, looking forward to reading more of your work in the Times and Newsweek and the Hill Guardian, all that. Uh, we hope to have you on again, and uh, yeah, thank you so much, and uh, have a great evening. And I hope that twenty twenty is as good. For you as uh, it can be and uh, be safe and I hope your family's safe and get that vaccine obviously as soon as possible we all will and uh, be safe yeah thank you likewise thank you all for having me on thank you all right uh, very cool very cool guy I like that conversation yeah it's yeah, good I, I wish we had more time we'll have to bring him back why where is Jason <laughs> It sounds like he's like five. Oh, yeah. oh sorry, my mic. I had my mic turned on. It's like, where is it? Jason's in the other room. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he's reporting from the bedroom. Yeah. Uh, I, I would. I would. I hope we can bring him back on. There, there was a point in the conversation that I wanted to jump in, but um, I didn't want to interrupt uh, what was going on. But he brought up that Joe Biden was a reformer and that he would compromise. And my question. Like a question I have, and maybe you two could answer it for me. Sure, I'm just as distinguished as the doctor we just had on. You're not, but you know, you guys are. You know, you you both have your finger on the pulse. And but my observation is, whenever Democrats get in charge, it's always about 
you know, we need to be bipartisan, but you get Republicans in charge of things and bipartisanship goes out the window. Like there's no talks, like they just do what they want. Why is there a double standard between when Democrats have leadership and when Republicans do? I feel like they should always have, they should always be bipartisan. You know, either side should always get their way. It's somewhere in the middle. That's where most Americans want to live. I feel like they're kind of giving like the Senate people in the Senate and the Congress, like a last ditch ultimatum here. Like here's your choices. Like you can work with us and be decent about working with us and not give us your asinine, like other ideas that are just off completely that, you know, will be completely off the table or we're just going to do what we want because at this point, like, I mean, we could go into a whole discussion over it, but usually you only get two or one reconciliation vote per year. Democrats have two right now. They could piggyback shit on top of shit and we could pass through so much legislation in two reconciliation votes. And really, I mean, they thought they stuck it to us with their stupid tax breaks. Well, we could just wreck their agenda completely at this point. So really, if they were smart, they would sit down and negotiate like good hearted people. But why is it like that? Why are Democrats like why? In my observation, they're like, you know, know. They, they try to reach across the aisle. Like, why doesn't it go the other way? Well, that's what happened last time we had power. I think this time they're I think they're not going to fall for it. I think they're legitimately trying to restore our government. All right. We're back live. IW radio. And uh, thank you everybody for listening this week. If you are uh, uh, listening live, I, uh, don't forget to get the podcast because there's bonus content on there. Sometimes not everything uh, will make the the actual show. So if you get the the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, the Adobe app, get the podcast, and then you can, uh, you know, get everything. Plus, get, get caught up as well. So anyway, that's our little commercial for the the podcast and the show was sponsored by our podcast the show sponsored is brought to you by it's news to us is brought to you by it's news to us all right um you know we're doing one of those things where we come back and then say goodbye i hate that but I do um, hate we that. didn't want to say a proper goodbye i i, I was actually watching conan o'brien's show just last night and he did that he's like we'll be right back and then he came back goodbye. and he's like, goodbye. And the, 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 the credits were rolling. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I got sold AT&T for nothing. Damn you, Conan. Any final thoughts? No. I thought you had something, Katie. No, Jason? Big episode. We talked about a lot. Yeah. It's all the steam out of the engine. Okay, that's good, though. All right. Well, we'll see yeah. you guys next time subscribe to the podcast. It's news to us. And then uh, please do give us a, a follow on Twitter. We do follow as many people back that aren't bots as possible. So uh, come say hello. What's up? Just don't look like a bot and we'll follow you back. <laughs> exactly. Don't look like a bot. <laughs>
appreciate it very much, Tim Apple. Frontier presents Confessions of a Laptop. Hey, your laptop here. Your slow, unreliable internet is making things a drag, my friend. It's time to get Frontier Fiber Optic Internet. With upload speeds up to 25 times faster than cable. And because it's fiber optics, it's more resistant to bad weather. Frontier 500 Meg starts at just $59.99 a month plus tax. See the light. Switch to fiber with Frontier Fiber Optic Internet. Go to Frontier.com slash Y-Fiber for complete offer details. Service is subject to availability in all applicable terms and conditions.